Good evening. Another police shooting in Minnesota. The police chief says it's an accident. The president calls for calm as protests spread. A cardiologist says George Floyd should still be alive. And the head of the state teachers union, that's the New York State Teachers Union, speaks with WBAI as an anti-nuclear war protester, prepares for prison. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, April 12th, 2021. Two years after the arrest of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, vigils were held Sunday in New York, London, and cities across the world. An extradition requested by the United States charging the Australian journalist with espionage was denied by a British judge, but the denial is being appealed and Assange was denied bail. The WikiLeaks founder was dragged from the Ecuadorian embassy in London on April 11th in 2019 by police before being arrested for breaching his bail conditions and held in Belmarsh Prison. The protesters demanded Assange be released, projecting messages onto buildings reading journalism is not a crime and bring Assange home. The managing editor of Shadowproof is Kevin Gasola. He says President Joe Biden is continuing to try and win Assange's extradition to face decades in a U.S. maximum security prison. On April 11th, we saw hundreds, if not thousands of people throughout the world mobilize for demonstrations. They went to British consulates. They were at embassies in London. I believe they returned to the Ecuador embassy where Julian Assange was expelled two years ago. And uh, in in London, they rented a, they rented a double decker bus and they were riding around. Uh, there were uh, billboards that were rented and you can drive around with on trailers. They had those out in D.C. and other cities in the United States. We're seeing a growth in the activism for the Free Assange movement. And using the anniversary as a moment to renew people's demand for the U.S. government to abandon its case against Julian Assange and particularly do so now that Joe Biden is president. It's an extradition case by the United States at this point. The United States lost their extradition case in January and currently it is Julian Assange who is in the winner's seat when it comes to extradition. But uh, if we're talking about extradition, there's a fundamental issue that the United States has that goes beyond WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange because the ruling from the judge suggests that the U.S. could never be trusted to keep any person who it wants to extradite from the UK or even potentially all of Europe, they could not be trusted to take care of them if they have mental or physical health issues when they are holding them in pretrial confinement or after they are sentenced, holding them in uh, either if it's a supermax prison or even a high security prison in the United States. Julian Assange's legal team has gone forward with a cross appeal and they are challenging the way in which the judge ruled without acknowledging that this case threatens press freedom. Explain that for us in simple terms. The High Court of Justice is the next level up 
in the United Kingdom beyond the district court. It will be similar to how we have federal appeals courts here in the United States. There's also the ability of the defendants to file a cross appeal, as it is referred. They can say, we don't like the precedent of what this decision represents, because this judge did not have any objection to the claims that were made about Julian Assange and how he conducted himself as an editor of WikiLeaks. And uh, we feel that they are criminalizing journalistic conduct. So we would like to go before the High Court of Justice and say that they should reject that part of the judge's ruling. On the personal level, Julian Assange and his family and all of his supporters and friends could be done with this case. If they if they prevail against the United States, they do not have to prolong this. But if they want to make a larger issue about how the district judge did not see the arguments of press freedom groups worldwide, then it definitely means that this is going to be something that moves through the courts for the next, you know, let's say three or four years. Myanmar yeah. government could ex- demand the extradition of a, uh, a Myanmar democracy advocate who's in England or the United States or any other country. It probably would have more impact on people who ran mostly independent outlets uh, that didn't have institutional support, couldn't bring together the lawyers that they needed to challenge prosecution. But still, it's alarming to think that if this stands, it creates a green light for a lot of countries to target journalists. And that is Kevin Gostola. He is a journalist and the uh, editor of Shadowproof. U.S. prosecutors indicted Assange on 17 espionage counts and one charge of computer misuse over WikiLeaks publication of thousands of leaked military and diplomatic documents. The maximum sentence for these charges is 175 years in prison. Prosecutors also say that Assange unlawfully helped U.S. Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning steal classified diplomatic cables and military files that were later published by WikiLeaks. Manning has denied receiving help from Assange. And back in the United States, the police chief of the Minneapolis suburb of Brooklyn Center said today the police officer who fatally shot Duante Wright, a 20-year-old unarmed black man during a traffic stop Sunday, apparently meant to fire a taser, but instead made an accidental discharge from her gun. The police chief, Tim Gannon, also said he decided to release body cam video of the shooting, although the videos are usually not released until later in a police shooting investigation. Gannon said he wanted to make a point. That will include showing a video portion from the point of deadly force used by the officer, as well as the officer's immediate reaction after the use of deadly force. I caution everybody as you watch this that this will be graphic and unedited. Could I have that video start, please? Can you turn the lights back on, please? As you can hear, the officer, while struggling with Mr. Wright, shouts, Taser, Taser, several times. That is part of the officer's training prior to deploying a Taser, which is a less lethal device. That is done to make her partners aware, as well as the subject, that a Taser deployment will be imminent. 
During this encounter, however, the officer drew their handgun instead of their taser. For informational purposes, we train with our handguns on our dominant side and our taser on our weak side. So if you're right-handed, you carry your firearm on your right side and you carry your taser on the left. This is done purposefully and is trained. As I watch the video and listen to the officer's commands, it is my belief that the officer had the intention to deploy their taser, but instead shot Mr. Wright with a single bullet. This appears to me, from what I viewed and the officer's reaction and distress immediately after, that this was an accidental discharge that resulted in the tragic death of Mr. Wright. The officer is currently on administrative leave and know that this is being investigated by the correct authorities, which is the BCA. Unfortunately, they're not here today, but they are handling the investigation. And I have very little information besides what I've just given to you because they are handling that investigation. Unfortunately, the BCA normally is a present here during these types of conferences. Um, but what I've understood is the releasing of video this early in a situation is not something that they condone. They leave it up to me to do that. And as I decided to do that, they're not part of this conversation. They're not part of this press conference at this time. Why did you decide to do this? I felt the community needed to know what happened. They needed to see it. I needed to be transparent. And I want to be forthright. I do respect to Dante as well. From what I've understood from the, the public safety briefing, there was an expired registration on the vehicle. That means the tabs were expired. Upon arrival, when the officer made contact, I think at that time when he made it, when he walked up to the car, he discovered that there was a hanging item from the from the rear view mirror. He ran his name and he found out that he had a warrant. That's why they were moving from the car and they were making a custodial arrest. It was a gross misdemeanor warrant. And that is the police chief, uh, Tim Gannon of Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. BCA is the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. Shortly afterwards, during the today's press conference, after being asked if he's uh, going to fire the officer who shot right, Chief Gannon walked out of the room, prompting Mayor Mike Elliott to step in. This is what I'm here for. Okay. <clears throat> I'm the leader of this department. They expect me to lead. Create a safe city. That's what I'm trying to do. So that's that's it. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I'm emotional. I'm just trying to be honest. And then the mayor stepped up. I, I do not know why the chief left. Um, you know, it, I can only speculate as to why, uh, why he left, at, you know, at the time that he did. I, I don't I don't have any speculation. I mean, it's, it's possible that, you know, the, the chief, uh, you know, takes a position uh, perhaps similar to the city manager that, you know, there, there needs to be, uh, you know, some some kind of a process or, um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I would only a sign of disunity in the town government, it seems. Hundreds of residents took to the streets of Brooklyn Center last night with police using tear gas and rubber bullets. The Minnesota National Guard announced that just over 500 personnel have been activated. The Guard had said it would increase its presence as the trial of Derek Chauvin approached closing arguments, but those plans have been ex expedited due to the events in Brooklyn Center. Wright's mother, Katie Wright, told reporters her son had been driving a car that his family had just given him two weeks ago and that he had called her as he was being pulled over. 
In Washington, President Joe Biden called the police shooting of Dante Wright tragic, but he say, but is saying there's no justification for violence by protesters. And uh, I haven't called uh, Dante Wright's family, but uh, our prayers with their family is really a tragic thing that happened. We're and uh, but I think uh, we got to wait and see what the investigation shows. Uh, and the entire investigation. You all watched, I assume as I did, the film, which is fairly the body cam, which is fairly, uh, fairly graphic. Um, the question is, was it an accident? Was it intentional? That remains to be determined uh, uh, by a full-blown investigation. But in the meantime, I want to make it clear again, there is absolutely no justification, none, for looting, no justification for violence. Peaceful protest, understandable. And the fact is that, you know, uh, we do know that the anger, pain, and trauma that exists in the black community in that environment is real. It's serious and it's consequential. But it doesn't, will not justify violence and or looting. And so the question is, uh, how we, in an orderly way, make clear that they get down to a full-blown investigation to determine what the facts are and what is likely to have happened. In the meantime, we're calling for peace and calm, and uh, we should listen to uh, uh, Dante's mom, who is calling for peace and calm. And that's all I have to say at this moment on that issue. So. President Joe Biden, 6 p.m. curfews have been issued in Brooklyn Center and Governor Tim Waltz of Minnesota has ordered a 7 p.m. curfew for the Twin Cities. In response to the shooting in Brooklyn Center, defense lawyer Eric Nelson, representing Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer charged with killing George Floyd, asked for the jury to be sequestered to prevent them from hearing about the shooting. The request was turned down. Um, as the court, I'm sure, is aware, uh, an officer-involved shooting took place in the city of Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. As a result of that, there was some fairly extensive civil unrest that occurred. Um, I would note for the court um, that we have at least one juror who is a resident of that particular city um, and other jurors who have connections to Brooklyn Center. This is obviously a high-profile case. This is a case that uh, evokes a lot of emotion. For, for a lot of people. Ultimately, Your Honor, the question becomes, will the jury be confident to, to make a decision regardless of the potential outcome of their decision? Yes, Your Honor, thank you. The state opposes the motion for sequestration. I don't believe that sequestration would be a, a remedy that would be appropriate or, frankly, effective in this matter. I'm going to deny the motion to sequester the jury and for additional voir dire. Uh, this is a totally different case. It's if, and I realize there's civil unrest, and maybe some of the jurors did hear about that. I think the better way is to just continue with the trial as we've been going. It'd be a different story if it was civil unrest following another verdict where the jury can see what the consequence of a certain verdict might be in a similar case. But that's not this case. That's Judge Peter Cahill. Meanwhile, the jury heard from a cardiologist, Jonathan Rich, who said George Floyd didn't die from a drug overdose. And if cops had acted to save him, Floyd would be alive today. Well, just prior to that point, um, I heard one of the officers actually ask, uh, actually on two occasions, 
if Mr. Floyd should be turned on to his side. And the response was, no, just leave him. And once the officer announced that he did not have a pulse anymore, I think he actually said he does not have one was the exact words. At that point, the immediate response would then be to not only relieve him of the restraint, but at that point, now you've got to start CPR. You've got to start immediate chest compressions because we know that if you can get to a patient right away, even when they've lost their pulse, even when they've gone into a cardiopulmonary arrest, there is a significant opportunity to save a life. But for every minute that transpires that you are not performing the basic life support and CPR measures, the literature would suggest an approximately 10 to 15 percent less chance of survival. Cardiologist Jonathan Rich at the trial of Derek Chauvin today in Minneapolis. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Governor Andrew Cuomo on Monday released safety guidelines for in-person graduation ceremonies this spring. The restrictions are dependent on the sizes of the ceremonies. They include capacity restrictions and in some cases a need for either proof of vaccination or a recent negative COVID-19 test. The guidance comes a few hours after the governor announced that its state would send vaccines directly to college campuses in an effort to vaccinate young people as the virus spread is growing in 18 to 24 year olds. And roughly 51,000 students signed up to return to their school buildings this month after New York City officials gave families a final opportunity to opt in for in-person learning this school year. Mayor Bill de Blasio announced that today. These students from elementary, middle and high schools can head back to the classroom beginning April 26th. This week, the uh, the state this weekend approved the changed social distancing requirements based on recently updated guidance from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Teachers unions have been generally supportive of the state's move to uh, more in-class education. But New York State United Teachers President Andrew Pallotta tells WBAI there just isn't enough testing available to pull it off. When it comes to certain things like at the end of this budget, we saw a lot more um, funding coming into the schools, so on funding, they are getting it right. When it comes to um, testing for COVID in the schools throughout the state, we're not anywhere near where we need to be. So what we have is the last time we surveyed the school districts, we had 57 out of 700 that were actually doing COVID testing. That is something that has to change. The entire state is affected by changes that allow elementary school kids to get closer than six feet. And they're talking about the two time rule where uh, do you think these are wise changes and do they affect the whole state? They definitely affect the whole state. And what we're seeing is the CDC came out with its rule change from six feet to three feet. But I believe that they also think that there is a lot of COVID testing going on in the schools and that is not happening. So we like to say we um, support a holistic approach to safety in the schools when it comes to COVID, right? We're not seeing that at this point. So CDC changed the rules. The state has now changed the rules six feet to three feet, but we do not see the COVID testing, which would be able to give us an idea of how many people in school buildings are actually sick. They may be asymptomatic, COVID testing would let us know. 
What about vaccinations? Is that important from your point of view? The vaccinations are crucial. It has been something where we advocated very hard for to have educators as part of 1B when there was a restriction on who was getting the vaccination. So we were happy with that result. We're also saying that anyone who wants the vaccination should get that vaccination. So that is part of this process. Vaccines, it is disinfecting, it is testing. It is a little bit of everything happening at the same time. Is it easy? No. But is it something that we have to do throughout the state? Yes. New York City and the areas outside of New York City got hundreds of millions of dollars to do COVID testing from the federal government. $250 million for New York City alone, $335 million outside of New York City. This should be in place already. This should be happening but it is not. The actual number of students coming back to school is is still quite low and not expected to be much higher. You know, both sides saying different things, but you get the impression that parents are not rushing back their kids back to school, in-person school. Right. I do think that there is a hesitancy, right? Some parents really want to get the students back in schools as soon as possible. Some are still hesitant. Maybe they're not getting enough information from the school district. Maybe they're not feeling that confidence. If we go back to last August, there was a lot of discussion about confidence. Does the community feel that the schools are safe? Is everything being done? Is the social distancing in place? Maybe they were looking at this and saying, I'm not ready for that to happen. A mask policy being mandated, the disinfecting. There has to be that kind of cooperation between everyone in the school community, especially the parents. You don't think there's going to be vaccine passports or uh, required teachers to get inoculations and things like that? Will they have to go that far? We don't support mandating vaccines for educators, but we do support anyone who wants a vaccine to get it. New York State United Teachers President Andrew Pallotta, he spoke with WBAI today. And finally, anti-war activist Mark Colville was sentenced Friday to 21 months in federal prison for his role in a peaceful protest against the United States nuclear weapons. He was the last of the Kings Bay Plowshares 7 to be sentenced. In 2018, Colville and six other Plowshares activists broke into the Kings Bay Naval Submarine Base in Georgia with an indictment charging the U.S. government with crimes against humanity. Colville, who works here in the Lower East Side at uh, Mary's house, spoke with WBAI today. Maybe the heart of the action is trying to uh, hold courts accountable for their basically issuing impunity to this government for its crimes around the, uh, you know, the industry of nuclear, nuclearism and and, uh, first strike policy and all of that. So, um, you know, that's what I went in with. That was my agenda going in, not not to talk about me or anything regarding... uh, mercy or anything or you know what a sentence should be and all that and so we you know we had a uh, kind of a brief presentation which included a statement from a, a longtime friend who acted as a character witness for me um, he made an excellent statement and then and then I spoke again to the uh, to the um, the illegitimacy of the court and the, the way the court behaved uh, basically uh, railroading all of us into a political trial Um in terms of results, uh, the, the judge gave me a sentence of 21 months, um, 
uh, include which includes an order of restitution to the Navy, which they know that because of my uh, sincerely held religious beliefs that I won't be able to to pay any money to the military, um, or for, certainly not for nuclear weapons. Um, and then uh, three years of supervised release. Uh, we have 60 days. I have 60 days to report to a federal prison. Um, I had no intention of, of asking the court for any favors, uh, you know, including uh, where they would send me or anything. But at the end of the proceedings, the judge asked me uh, straight up uh, if I had a, a preference to where, where I should serve the time. And so uh, since she asked, I, I requested Danbury, Connecticut, which is just about 45 minutes from home. So hopefully uh, if I get there, then family can visit and all that. Um, now, um, the other thing is uh, I had uh, refused the, um, initially anyway, refused the, uh, you know, the circumstances of, uh, of pretrial release, you know, posting bail and all of that. Um, so I, I did uh, 15 months in the county jail down there in Brunswick, um, all of which counts towards this sentence. So um, I haven't gotten a calculation yet from the uh, from the Bureau of Prisons, but I, I think what I have left to do from the 21 months is somewhere between three and five months. <clears throat> Probation Department here is going to be responsible for the collection of this bogus restitution. How much and is so that? We are going to run into some conflict there. Well, uh, it's a, it's kind of a blanket order, which each of us are supposed to be personally responsible for, and it's 33000 something dollars. In an activist community, you might be able to raise that with a Patreon or a... Uh, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, actually, uh, you bring up a common uh, misconception uh, with regard to these actions. We, we don't pay. Um, and we, uh, you know, we respectfully decline, uh, you know, offers which come in all the time of, of people putting up the money for us. I mean, this is part of the point. I mean, uh, uh, they're spending 100 thousand dollars a minute over the next 10 years to upgrade the nuclear arsenal um and we simply non-cooperate with that as much as we can so under no circumstances do i want anybody paying that on my behalf either what damage was uh worth thirty thousand dollars that's actually when you're dealing with military equipment it seems a small amount it may be a small or a large amount but uh, from our perspective it's a completely arbitrary what amount. did you do it, oh really well, well what damage was done well, I would say no damage was done because whatever they call property, uh, whatever we addressed over there that they call property is not proper uh, to human life, and we don't recognize it as property. There is what I can only describe as a shrine to nuclear weapons. They have replicas of these weapons erected there, and a couple of us went and addressed that place and caused some what they would classify as damage there. Others went to the bunkers where they actually store these, these weapons, and we're cutting through the fences. There are a couple of electric fences. And people were cutting through that when the Marines showed up. And at that point, they stopped. Mark Colville is one of the Kings Bay Plowshares 7. Activists broke into the Kings Bay Naval Submarine Base in Georgia with an indictment charging the U.S. government with crimes against humanity. Colville was sentenced to 21 months in federal prison on Friday. And 
and that's some of the news for Monday, April 12, 2021. The news is produced by Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo for the WBAI News. Thanks for listening.